just really glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. I just want to extend a special welcome to you. If you happen to be here as a guest and this is your very first time, then I would invite you to look in the seat under the seat in front of you. There's not a special gift for you there, but there's a card. And that card is something that we just ask you to fill out. And as the offering plate passes by, actually it's not a plate, it's a little bag. As the bag passes by in a few moments, we just ask that you would put that in the offering. That's all we'd ask you to put in the offering as our guest this morning. We're just really glad that you're here. And that way we get a chance to know a little bit about you personally and we can make uh, contact with you if that's something that you would desire. We'd like to do that, sure would like to do that. So uh, I have a privilege of uh, introducing our new administrative assistant and her husband. So Megan, would you and your husband and your son uh, stand up for us? Uh, there's uh, Megan and her, we just give him a welcome and a hand of applause. And you can sit down. I don't want to embarrass them too much, but we're just glad that they're with us this morning. Um, Megan's husband uh, works at Fairway just off of university, right? Okay, so he's in the, the meat department, is that right? All right, meat manager of the Fairway there. So just encouraged that uh, Megan's been just such a big help and just grateful of God send to get them on board, get her on board. So we're really grateful for that and just continue to pray for them. Ask you to meet them after the service if you would. Okay, we got a lot of stuff going on, but uh, here's the deal. Next Sunday is a big push. We're getting a big push for the Urbandale Food Pantry. So we want you, as you're shopping this week, uh, pick up some extra stuff. Bring it. We're going to put it up here uh, under the tree, wherever we can put it. Uh, we want to make a big splash, a big encouragement for the folks in Urbandale to show them that Creekside Church is not just about ourselves but we're about ministering and reaching out and caring for the people in our community. It can be our gift, our Christmas gift, to the Urbandale community this year. So I just really encourage you to come with your stuff. Bring it next Sunday. If you come one Wednesday, you can bring it Wednesday, and we'll just display it out here this uh, next Sunday, and then uh, we'll have it delivered probably Monday or Tuesday to the food pantry. I also want to remind you that on the 17th is the children's Christmas program here during the morning service. So invite your friends and guests. Do we have some of those invitations uh, printed up? I got something in the first service. They're, they're on the table at the back, are they? Somebody tell me. On the Guest Central, at Guest Central? Okay, so as you leave the sanctuary, there's a table out there called Guest Central uh, or a, another table across the way. Uh, look for these little blue cards to invite people. So invite your family, your friends, your neighbors, and come out and share the message of Christmas with them, okay, at the Christmas program. Also, I just uh, ask that you keep in mind other things that are in the bulletin. Please be reading that, and we just won't forget our Wednesday evening activities. We've got a lot of good stuff going on on Wednesday nights. I mean, there's Bible studies for men and for women and for mixed age group and there's young people stuff going on so if you have any questions if you go out the door here and you turn around and look at the big screen the tv screen you can have that scrolling or you can read it in the bulletin so appreciate that let's pray father as we prepare our hearts to take up this offering i just pray that this might be a form of worship for us the giving of these things which you have given to us. We pray and thank you for the blessings and pray and ask now that as we share uh, these gifts that you'd use what we give to advance your cause. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to thank our praise team and our musicians.
what a blessing to be led in worship uh, in that way. Thank you all very much for letting God use your abilities and talents. One of the neat things about the body of Christ is to see everybody using their stuff that God has given them for his glory and for the gain of his kingdom because that blesses all of us so that we can be a blessing to others. Let's pray. Father, here in the love of Christ, uh, I stand. And if it were not for the love of Christ and the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, the body broken and his blood shed, and the Spirit of God working to draw me and to draw us to you, we would not be able to stand in this place and be in this place in Christ. What a gift. And I pray that as we worship you through the study of your word, that your spirit would speak to each heart because you know what each of us needs. I pray that each of us would hear what you need us to hear and that we would be challenged and changed by your spirit's work for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In our yard in Albert City, where we, uh, actually it's hard to say because we kind of still live there, so it's a little bit hard. Those of you who are new to the church, uh, I've been a pastor here now for three months. I was counting. So it's September, October, and November all completed. So for three months. So my wife and my daughter still live in Albert City. I travel back and forth, so I'm kind of this uh, uh, itinerant preacher, I guess you would say. But in the yard in Albert City, where we have lived or had lived for the past 21 years, I built a fire pit. And uh, in, in vanity, I was a little bit uh, uh, proud of myself for being able to construct this thing because I don't pride myself as being the, the master craftsman. So I put this fire pit up. And people think it's their duty to fill the fire pit with sticks. I never did understand why the people thought they had the right to pile their sticks into our fire pit. But they did. And when they do that, what they do is they provide swords for all of the neighborhood boys you know and above the fire pit and around the fire pit are these massive walnut trees and in the fall the walnuts fall to the ground and in the hands of the little boys they become projectiles because boys will be boys and in spite of all of the educated documentation, there is undoubtedly a distinct difference between boys and girls. Anybody who's raised children knows that there's a difference. And the difference is that their identity impacts their activity. And what's true physiologically is also true spiritually. Who we are spiritually, naturally, necessarily impacts how we behave 
in life. Identity impacts activity. In fact, John goes so far in 1 John chapter 2 as to say that assurance of our fellowship, assurance of being in relationship with God, having eternal life, is contingent or is reflected by our activity. If we engage in certain activity or refrain from certain activity, it manifests that we truly have this identity in Jesus. He said it before. The children of God walk in the light. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. They obey God's word. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. They walk as Jesus walked. Chapter 2, verse 6. And the last time we were together, we saw that they love one another. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And now we see another way, another test that John lays out for us to give assurance to believers. He wants to comfort those who truly are children of God, and he wants to challenge those who are pretending to be children of God by saying, here's how you can know. Here's how you can know if you walk in the light. If you do what Jesus did, live as Jesus did. If you love your brothers. If you now, something you don't do. If you don't love the world. If there is divergence from the world in our activity, then it proves that we are truly one of God's children. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to look at these two reasons that John offers to the church for concluding that divergence from the world proves that we are his children, that provides assurance of our fellowship, that our relationship with God is genuine if there is divergence from the world. Beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2, we read this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of the life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its lusts are passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. The two reasons John gives for making this claim that divergence from the world is an assurance that you are truly a child of God. First of all, we see our identity as separate from the world. Identity determines activity. So what is our identity? If you were following along as I read through the text, you notice that in verses 12 and through 13 and 14 that he twice mentions three groups of people. Twice mentions three groups. Okay, so there's three groups of people that are mentioned twice. He talks about children, he talks about fathers, and he talks about young men. So, natural question would be, well, why? Why does he keep, why does he repeat it twice, and why does he talk about those groups? 
It seems to me that he's trying to refer to emphasize that the message is for the entire church family. It's for the children, it's for uh, the fathers, it's for the young men. It includes all genders, all age groups, all levels of spiritual maturity. So that these terms refer to not only age groups, literal age groups, but they refer to spiritual maturity levels and they refer to all different genders. You also notice in the text that he says he uses a different verb form in the first section when he talks to the children and the fathers and the young men. He says, I am writing to you. And then if you look at the text, and I want you to look at the text, he says, in verse 14, I have written, no, verse 13, the end of verse 13, I have written to you, children, I have written to you, fathers, I have written to you, young men. So there's a verb change. Why is there a verb change? I think what he's doing is he's speaking to these people, and the verb change simply reflects the same message from two distinct vantage points. I recently wrote an article that's going to be published in the Urbandale Living Magazine. That's something that the area pastors and churches do. Well, so from my vantage point, I am writing to you, Urbandale. From those who read it, their vantage point is, I have written to you. So John is saying, I am writing to you. And from their vantage point, he's saying, I have written, or they're saying, that he has written to them, I have written to you. So it's two different perspectives that communicate the same message. Now, let's look at what he said to each. He said to the children, verse 12. Now, this is a word that typically indicates all of the people of God, God's children. Okay? You have your Bibles open, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. Verse 10 of chapter 3, verse John, 1 John 3. By this, the children of God. So he's talking about children, just like John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God. So he's talking about God's children, all of God's children. The people in the church that are the children of God. These are people who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross as the payment for their sins, acknowledging that they are wicked and sinful and destined for an eternity apart from God. That God in his mercy has sent his son and he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins and they, by grace, receive that gift. They're the children of God. These are the children. The entire church family. John's use of a different term for children. See, the Greek language has more than one word for child. So in verse 13, he uses a different word for child. And this communicates immaturity. Gives the sense that within this congregation, which consisted of many people who were children of God, there were some children of God who were a little bit more immature than other children. Just like our children are different in maturity levels. So there's spiritual difference in their maturity level. They're babes in Christ. So why did he write to them? He says in the text. He gives two reasons. First of all, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. That's why I'm writing to you, because you have this identity as people whose sins have been forgiven for his namesake. And it refers to an action that was completed in the past, the effects of which continue. Well, that's important. Your sins have been forgiven you. 
every sin of every believer, those who have put their faith or the trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, has been forgiven once for all time. It's a done deal. That's the marvel of the cross of Calvary. I don't have to pay a price for my sin. All past, present, and future sins have been forgiven through the cleansing power of His blood. Chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 John, he says this, But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the message of the cross. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing to you these things that you, to, to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who makes us righteous through His blood. Sins have been forgiven because your sins have been forgiven. Some of you will not know the name Harold Morris, and that's fine. Harold Morris was in a car, and some of his buddies decided while he's sitting out in the parking lot of a convenience store that they're going to rob the store. And they came out, got in the car with him, and they took off. Well, let me tell you, young people particularly, he was convicted of a crime of grand theft uh, or of robbery and went to jail. So just because he was in the car, he didn't even, you know, he wasn't in there doing anything wrong. He was in the car with them. He was an accessory to the crime, and he went to jail. And in jail, people shared the gospel with him. They shared the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, and he, he repented of his sins, and he turned, and he trusted Christ, and his sins were forgiven. And then the parole board heard his case, and they pardoned him. And he wrote a book called Twice Pardoned. The sins which he had committed were forgiven, and the effects of that forgiveness continues on. That's what's true for every person who's put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. Our sins continue to be forgiven. This is the message. Young and old believers, you know, we do, we focus. We can focus on the joyous, blessed truth that our sins not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. John also speaks to them because you know the Father. Literally, you have come to know the Father. Uh, so these, these children, and particularly the infant ones, they focus on their forgiveness, and they also focus on the intimacy, the relationship that they have with their father. The enjoyment of this communion. This is kind of Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I want you to look at that. Uh, I think we have a screen for you. have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness as our spirit that we are the children of God. When Bob Vaughn shows up in Peon, Haiti, people run up to him and say, Hi, Bob. Right? 
Yes, they know Bob on the street. Everybody recognizes Bob. They know him. They rejoice in the relationship they have with Bob. Every one of us who knows Jesus as Savior has a relationship with the living God. And we rejoice in our forgiveness that's permanent and perpetual. And we release, rejoice in our communion with the Father. We know him the fathers, it says, uh, that's the next group. The fathers, verses 13, verse 1, I'm writing to the fathers. And verse 14, verse 1, I have written to you fathers. Why? Because they have known, they have come to know him. See, John wrote first to the believers, the children, to all Christians, and they had a right focus. I'm not saying it's wrong to focus on our forgiveness of sins and our relationship with the Father. That's true, but it's incomplete he says to the fathers, these are the spiritually mature ones. And notice, interestingly, in verse 13, he says, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Ding, 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 ding. Mine's, you know, should be going in our brain because chapter 1, verse 1, what we have, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have beheld, and our hands have handled concerning the word of they know the living Christ. These are the people who know him in a personal and powerful way. I read a story once uh, about uh, George Bush, former President George Bush. He was sitting on the couch at the end of his presidency. And Barbara came into the living room where he was seated and he goes, free at last. And she says, well, that's great. Now you can help me with the dishes. And he said, I'm the former president of the United States. And she says, this is now your new domestic policy agenda. <laughs> she knew her husband. The fathers here are the mature godly men and women, spiritual grown-ups, who through walking with Jesus for a long period, and maybe not so long, have come to love him and know him. And their deepest joy and satisfaction is found in their relationship with the living God. Psalm 73 is uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, uh, psalms. Whom have I, the, the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but thee? There is nothing I desire on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but the, 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 the strength of the Lord is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. That, that's a prayer that I want to be true of me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing I desire on earth besides you. You know what? I had a prof in seminary, he said it in one of the most profound statements, he says, I know God is all I need, I just don't know him well enough for him to be all that I want. I want to know him well enough for him to be all that I want. The fathers are these spiritually mature I just sat down with a dear brother in Christ on Friday night and sat next to me and he is one of the most godly men I know. And he was sharing with me some pictures from a place in the Middle East that I can't name. 
and a, a video of the believers there joyously celebrating Christ. And his heart is so full with what these believers are doing. Some of these believers are planning to go to do outreach among ISIS. The fathers, then the young men. Notice the text in verse 13, the end of verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then in verse 14, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of the Lord God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This represents and refers to the, those who have and continue to overcome. Do you know, folks, if you put your faith and your trust in Christ, you are a saint who is an overcomer. You have overcome the evil one. The presence of sin is there, but the power of sin and the penalty of sin is gone in the life of every child of God. Saints who through faith in Christ have conquered the ultimate power of sin. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self has been crucified, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we should no longer what? Now read the words. End of it. Be slaves to sin. You and I have a choice by God's grace as believers to sin or not to sin. Before we come to faith in Christ, we don't have a choice. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. We just sin as a matter of fact. So they overcome. They vigorously and continuously wage war. I want to ask you, are, are you waging war against sin it's pressing you it's pushing you it's tempting you it's troubling you but do we wage war do we consciously actively vigorously he says you have overcome you have overcome you have strength to overcome to resist the lies of the enemy the accuser who says you're worthless you're ugly you're not useful for the kingdom of God God doesn't love you God doesn't care about you God doesn't see your situation. He won't answer your prayers. He doesn't give a rip about what's happening in your life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The vigorously overcome. Paul said in Romans 12, 2. Verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They vigorously wage war. They apply all diligence in their faith. You know, there's the thing. We come to faith in Christ. We have victory over it. But we still have to work. We still have to serve. We still have to apply all diligence, Paul says, or Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Applying all diligence in your faith and in your diligence, supply moral character and in your moral character. It says, supply knowledge, and your supply of knowledge is supply self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly loveness, love, and in your brotherly love, kindness. These people find their strength where? 
verse 14. He says, because you are strong, they rely on the one who overcame. You know, John 16, 33, John tells his disciples at the end of that, uh, towards the end of that upper room discourse, he says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Uh, anybody here relate with that? Uh, tribulation? You know, you get up, you know, there's, there's, not, there's too much month at the end of the money. There's uh, too much pain when you get out of bed. There's uh, not enough uh, encouragement along the way. Job change, aches and pains. Got to go to the doctor more than you want to go to the doctor. Isn't, isn't it crazy? The older we get, it's like, this is the topic of conversation. My, my latest doctor's appointment, you know. I mean, they're going in every orifice in the body, you know, looking at, uh, you know, all of everything, you know. It's like, whoa. Really? That's life? In the world you'll have tribulation. And he's not just talking about physical pain. He's talking about persecution. But be of good cheer, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Who shall separate us from the love of God, Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of God? What shall separate us from God? Shall tribulation or persecution or famine or peril or nakedness or sword... He says, no, daily we are put to death for Jesus' sake. It's Romans chapter 8. And he says, we are counted as sheep before the shearers, before the slaughters, where that we're counted them. But we are overcome in all these things. We are more than conquerors. I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come neither height nor depth nor any other created being is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul says that's your identity. If you're a child of God he's overcome. This is how we overcome. And notice it's relying upon the one overcome and it's remaining letting the word of God remain in us. That's the text. That's not me. End of verse 14. He says, the word of God abides in you. What does it mean abide? It takes up residence. It's there, dwelling in us. Why? Because the word of God is that which reminds us of what God has said instead of Satan who reminds us of what he says, which is a lie, a lie, a lie, a lie, a lie. We visited, the, as a family, we visited the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs one time. Watch the U.S. men's gymnastics team working out, preparing for the Olympics. It's just, it just blew my mind. I'm sitting here, like, right where you guys are sitting, they're doing the still rings right above me. You know, like, I'm like this guy. You know, psh, and you're like, whoa. They're doing the vault. You know, boom. They're doing a floor exercise, the parallel bars, all this kind of stuff. And we were told that those guys are burning 7,000 calories a day. Now, for some of you, that doesn't mean a whole lot, you know. Uh, but a really active person may burn three or 4,000 calories a day. I mean, a really active person. And the older you get, the less, you know, the more active you have to burn those calories. This is just like phenomenal. I mean, these people could eat as much as they want. They can't eat enough to keep themselves going. And yet, we as Christians think that one meal on Sunday from the Word of God is going to satisfy and nourish and make us abide, the Word of God abide in us, and it's not true. We need to feed 
on the Word of God. Because it's in the Word of God that we have be reminded. That's why Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, be, be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The only guard we have is the truth. Be renewed by the, by the truth. Because Satan is telling us lies. Satan is telling us lies. I heard a story about a young man, a little boy, actually like three or four years old, and his, his uncle came in when the boy was sleeping and gave him a wet willy. I don't know, some of you don't know what that is, but it's you lick your finger and you stick it in her ear, and it just drives them nuts, you know, so it woke him up. So the little boy came home and his uncle was asleep. His uncle's like a 20-year-old uh, jock, and, 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 his, and the, the uncle's brothers are saying, hey, go give your uncle a wet willy. Go give him a wet willy. And the little boy goes, well, that wouldn't be nice. No, it wouldn't be nice. Let the Word of God abide in us. And so God says, here's your identity. That's one reason why you know that you have assurance of fellowship is if your identity translates into the proper activity, which now he gets into in verses 15 through 17. And that's our responsibility is to be separate from the world. Our identity is that we're separate from the world. Now let's live out who we are. The fellowship with God is evidence in our divergence, and our responsibility is communicated in two ways. We're given a command, verse 15, do not love the world. So the first question we have to ask is, well, what does it mean, the world? The command, first of all, is do not. That means as an ongoing reality. It's not like, okay, well, I didn't love the world like this morning from, you know, 6.30 to 6.45, so I'm good. You know, because I was asleep. So I didn't love the world. No, he says, do not love the world as an ongoing reality. What's the world? It's all of human existence under the control of the evil one. It's all that is contrary in its mentality, in its activity, and its push that is contrary to the evil one, including every way that mankind devises to find satisfaction without God. It's interesting, in the first service, we, we talked, touched on this a little bit, you know. What was that song, Mark, you were talking to? Who was the, the Stones? I, I, I can't find no satisfaction. Something like that. You know, can't find no satisfaction. Well, that's right. That's what the world's fine. And, and another man has described it as this destination sickness. We, we travel, we, we fast and furious to find our satisfaction in this thing. And then when we get there, when we find it, well, uh, that doesn't quite do it for us. So we have to find another thing. And another thing. As those who are connected to God, that's our identity as children of God. We're to love God. We're to love each other. We're to love those who don't know God. We're to enjoy the good things that God has given to us, yes. But we're not supposed to love the world. We're intimately connected. We're, we're, we're not to be committed. What does it mean to love? It means the commitment of our heart and our soul and our mind. We're not supposed to be committed to the pleasures and the priorities, and the practices of the world. Matt Lauer found that out the hard way. Satisfaction with the world, power and prestige led to a, a quest for satisfaction outside of 
God's plan. And there is a payment for it. We're given the cause for diverging. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love for the world is incompatible with love for God. If I love the world, then I cannot love the world and love God at the same time. Whoever loves the darkness does not love the light. Any Red Sox fans here? No? Well, just take my word for it. If you're a Red Sox fan, you're not a Yankees fan. If you're a Red Sox fan, there's no love for the Yankees in you. If you love the world, if I love the world, there's no love of the Father in me. That's what he's saying. What what is in the world? What does that mean? He defines it for us. The things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. What are the things in the world? First of all, the lust of the flesh. The compulsion to satisfy what were originally pure and natural desires in a perverted way. Love of the flesh. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the world. Eve saw the forbidden fruit. She lusted to satisfy. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness to satisfy his flesh because he was hungry. Now, is hunger a sin? No. Is it wrong to satisfy our hunger? No, but it can be if it is that which controls me, that which consumes me. We would call it gluttony, okay? Satisfaction of hunger is gluttony. Gratification from sexual activity is not a wrong thing in the right way. But when it leads to pornography or adultery, fornication, that's the lust of the flesh taking control. Of our life. Accumulation of stuff. It's not wrong to have things, but it's wrong to let things control us. If we worship what we have, then that's called idolatry. Affirmation through applause. My conviction that most, many people on Facebook are just wanting to be affirmed. Now, is it wrong to post Stuff about my kids? Not necessarily, but why? Lost to the flesh. Got to be affirmed. So is it, what is it, you know, so Starbucks, you know? I, just, I mean, I can't, I can't live without a Starbucks, you know? I got I to live. I just can't, you know, I can't, can't get through the day. I got to have my latest techie toys, you know? Whatever that is, you know? I got to have the, the latest techie deal. It's not wrong to have it. It's wrong to have to have it. That's what I hear him. It's the lust of the flesh, the pleasure, the applause, the lust of the eyes, captivating things that lure us and entice us in. That's what got David in trouble, remember? In the spring of the year when kings go out to war and this king was sitting at home. Now, we can go about the theology about going out to war later, okay? I'm not, I'm not, you know, what to do with all that. But anyhow, he, he wasn't doing what kings were supposed to do. He was sitting at home and oogling over another man's wife. Got him in trouble. Lust of the eyes. This is it. That's the problem that Anna had in the movie Frozen. 
right? Right? She fell for Hans. Uh, it's a problem. She shouldn't have gone there because he was not a good guy, but he was a good looker, you know? He's a looker. Young people take that for granted. There's, there's some truth to Proverbs 31. There's some truth to 1 Peter 3. You know, it's the, the gentle and quiet spirit. That's what you look for. It's the good in the person, okay? Lust of the eyes. So I asked you this morning, what delights your eyes? HGTV? Yeah. Yeah, there's some stuff there, you know. I got to see, you got to have the, you know, HGTV tells us that nicer and newer and bigger and fancier, that's what you have to have. Commercials. You know what a purpose of a commercial is? To create discontent. We talked in the first service about being content. But commercials create discontent, Right? Because that's what you have to have if you're going to consume more. You have to be discontent with what you have. You have to have more. That's the way of the world. I used to have this uh, delight of the eyes for uh, boy toys. So I brought one of my boy toys. You know. And there was a time in my life when I ran from pillar to post to find the next boy toy. Thinking that somehow, if I just had the next one, that it'd be okay, that my, my soul would be satisfied. And it was a lie from the pit of hell. Because you know what? They make more of these than any one person could ever own in their entire lifetime. And they keep manufacturing different forms of it. Now, my lure is a little bit more refined. I'm more tempted by man toys. You know, the only difference between a man and a boy is the size and the price of his toy. And living in Urbandale doesn't help. There are some blessings of living in the city. And there are some curses. You see, when you live in the middle of nowhere, you don't see a lot of the nice toys that tempt you. I mean, I don't really care if I own a four-wheel drive, you know, John Deere, Steiger, Caterpillar tractor. I mean, it doesn't tempt me at all. But when I'm driving on Hickman Road and, you know, there's a Jaguar over here and a BM over here and a Lamborghini over here, I'm going, whoa, that would be nice. And it's a lie from the pit of hell that I need that to be complete, that I need that to be satisfied. That's the world and its ways drawing us in the lust of the eyes that we need more. Where do I demand that my preference become my possession? That's why I think it's really healthy to go to a third world country. Because when you go to a third world country and a man walks up to the place and his entire worldly possessions consist of the clothes he has on his back, a stool, and a cooking pot. 
it gives a little perspective on what I need to live. Well, you know, I really need that clicker thing to turn on my uh, fan over my, you know, bed at night or to take my shades up and down. Now, I'm not saying if you have that, that you have somehow sinned. What I'm saying, it's not what we own, it's what owns us. matters. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. And I want to say this, don't be sitting here thinking, oh, I know of somebody who really loves the world. This is for you and me. You see, God blesses people. Think of Abraham. Think of David. They were richly blessed. Was that a sin? No. No. But if we have to have it, if we're controlled by it, then it can be a problem. It's not what's on. And then finally, the, the boastful pride of life. This is ostentation. This is you know presumption. It's arrogant exaltation of ourself. I have to be the most popular. I have to be the most successful. I have to be the most recognized. There's a popular Christian song, and I can't, I didn't look it up. I should have looked it up, but the, the gal says, I don't need my name in lights. I am precious in my Father's eyes. Do we need our name in lights? Do we need our name or banner? Oh, I need to be recognized. I need to be, you know, how much garbage happens in the church of Jesus Christ under the name of selfish pride and ostentation? Well, you know, they didn't have this program for me. They don't do this for me. They didn't do this for me, and they, they offended me, and I couldn't use this, and couldn't be me, 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 and I'm going to go, The way of the world. Do you know, Parade.com says, what do, what do you think? The average cost of a wedding in the United States. 20, 30. Average cost, 29,858 bucks. In Iowa, 18,995. I got two daughters. I'm not going to spend that much combined. Well, maybe I will. <laughs> I'm going to give them X number of bucks and say, go get it done. Whatever you want to do beyond that is up to you. I mean, think about that. What do you spend $30,000 to get married? Who are you trying to impress? That's what I'm thinking. Now, some of you spent that much. and So you're saying, well, you're offending me. Well, maybe you have that much and it was okay for you to spend that much. That's okay. Again, I can't point my finger at you and say you love the world and I don't love the world because I'm not spending that much. If God has blessed you and you're still not owned by it and you're not doing it to impress the neighbors, not doing it to make sure that everybody in the country club knows your name and that you had the best spread at your reception, who are we getting married for? Who are we living for? Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world and its lusts are passing away. That's, that's, that's what he says here. It's, it's passing away. The boastful pride is passing. The world is temporal. Those who love the world don't love God, and the world is temporal. 
And God's children are eternal. Look at the end of verse 17. But the one who abides in the will of God abides forever. That's what I want to be numbered among. The earthly system is under Satan's control, and he wants us to embrace it. And it's a, it's a problem. I'm thinking about the, Bob and Vera Hagman, their grandparents. Their kids and their grandchildren all live in the United States, but Bob and Vera felt the call of God to go to the armpit of Europe and minister among drug addicts and crack kids. And they miss Christmas with their grandkids. And they miss birthdays, birthday parties. Why? Because they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ And we sang a song in the early service where he says, I'll go, and what he says, I'll do. And they saw, and they heard, and they went, and they did. What do you think one of the first questions that people ask me when they they found out that I was moving to Urbandale and that I'm pastoring a church? What, what, What question would they ask me about the church? What question? What? Okay, what denomination? What else? How big? Yeah, how big is your church? I said, I don't know how many square feet. (laughs) But why do they ask how big is the church? Is that a God measure or a worldly measure? Because they want to know if the guy from from the sticks moved to the big city because he was moving up in the world to a bigger church. The more pay. I don't need my name and lights. I'm precious in my Father's eyes. The world says bigger and better and faster and stronger, and that's how you measure the success of life. And God says, no, love not the world. We need to reorder our life. I'm not saying everybody here needs to move to Rodham, Poland, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm saying what everyone needs to do, what all of us need to do, is first of all make sure that we have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is we're putting our trust and our faith in Him. We know that we're headed for hell, and we turn from our sin, and we trust in Jesus. And then once we trust in Jesus, He has charge. And when He has charge, He gives the directions, and I say, okay, Lord, I will follow. You love not the world, nor the things in the the world. Here's what Ironside said, as Christians are... Ours are the only joys that last forever. Ours are the things that will not pass away. We can be so foolish and invest so much in that which is simply fleeting and will leave us dissatisfied and unhappy at last. James Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He wants to live for the world here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, my challenge to you is to trust, turn from your sin and trust in Him. He's the only one who gives you the promise of forgiveness and eternal life and provides you with a purpose for living that extends beyond this life. Abides forever. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I just want you and me to examine our hearts and say, Lord, do I, where are the places where the love of the world lures me in? Help me to see it, identify it, and turn from it and trust you. I've been forgiven. Let me live in the joy of what it means to be your child. And as we celebrate communion, Jesus modeled for us this love 
A love that eclipsed a love for the world because he died for us. He left his father's throne to come to this earth. He, his, his love. And his response in the, in the temptation in the Matthew chapter 4, you know, in the wilderness, he showed his love for the father. He kept saying Satan. Satan wanted to get, take, take him from the cross. That's what Satan's temptation was. Follow me. Worship me. Eat from this food. No. His love for the Father was greater, and his love for the Father was translated into his love for God's people. And he came and he died on the cross and demonstrated his love for us. And when we celebrate the table of the Lord, that's what we do. We remember his death for us. So if you're this morning and you're trusting in Jesus, the Lord and Savior, I invite you to join us as we celebrate in the breaking of bread and the celebration of the cup. If you don't know Jesus, I invite you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus so that you could come and take this cup and understand, yes, I can have life and life more abundantly only because of Christ. And I can live not loving the world. In the world, yes, we're in the world, but not loving the world. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the blessing of what it means to know you. I pray that for each one here who is in love with the world, that they would see it's a fleeting love, it's a passing love, it's a non-satisfying love. They get no satisfaction. Satisfaction is only found in Jesus Christ. In Him we are complete. I pray they turn and trust you. For those of us who know you, Lord, search our hearts and examine us and try us and see if there's any anxious way. See where there's lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the sinful pride of life. And let us confess and repent and restore the joyous communion that you desire for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.